This is Anne Janzer, author of Writing to be Understood, What Works and Why. And you are listening to the always informative, never boring Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. I'll have more on Blinkist in a few minutes. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Ann Janzer back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Writing to be Understood, What Works and Why. Ann Janzer is an award-winning author and nonfiction writing coach. As a professional writer, she's worked with more than 100 high-tech businesses. She's the author of another book on writing, The Writer's Process, Getting Your Brain in Gear. And she's the author of an excellent marketing book, now in its second edition and translated into other languages and once featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, Subscription Marketing, Strategies for Nurturing Customers in a World of Churn. And while she lives in Mountain View, California, surrounded by self-driving cars and coding enthusiasts, some of whom work at local companies like Google, Symantec, and Intuit, nothing makes her quite as happy as a good book. And interesting fact, she has been known to be a marketing book podcast listener. And congratulations on writing to be understood and welcome back to the marketing book podcast. Thanks for having me back, Douglas. It's it's I'm really thrilled to be back. This is a such a wonderful podcast and your listeners are such classy people. I mean, I still hear from people um, from a couple uh, years ago when I was on this with really thoughtful questions and things. So it's oh, it's a great podcast. That is great. You know, there. Um, now, I'm not joking about this part because uh, often I'll say I do have the most attractive audience. I've seen many <laughs> of these people and they are very good looking people. But seriously, um, they are all uh, such learners. And you can just tell they're very successful too because they just – they want to learn. They they obviously like what they're doing, and they want to get better at it. And I and I even got a, a message last week from a, a a listener who she had just started out in marketing a couple of years ago, and she works for a big company, and she uh, 
was awarded marketer of the year by her company and she said that you know listening to the marketing book podcast has has helped and she even ran into the only other author on the podcast who's written a book about writing also named Anne Anne yeah. Handley who wrote Everybody Writes which is a phenomenal book and she met Anne Handley and said oh I'm a big fan of yours and I listened to your interview on the marketing book podcast a couple of <laughs> weeks later I ran into Anne Handley at Content Marketing World, guess who got a hug? Me, <laughs> me. Right. <laughs> and the people say, "Why do you? Why do you do the Marketing Week podcast?" Because I get hugs from Ann Hanley. I, that's pretty. There much, you go. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much Priceless. it. Priceless. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so uh, now we do have to go back. Um, they, the, there's this running issue with um, the Marketing Week podcast. There have been more authors on the podcast with degrees from Stanford University than any other school. <laughs> and when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you keep track of the important things like that. That's and right. we should add that uh, Ann Janser has a degree from Stanford University. So, you know, this, this episode brought to you by, the, uh, by Stanford University. Um, <laughs> Indirectly, yes. That's right, <laughs> right. And in keeping with that, um, there's a very special guest coming up for the 200th episode. And uh, this author has not been on the Marketing Book Podcast. He, this person is uh, a really special guest. And just a little hint, they too have a degree from Stanford University. So That doesn't narrow it down that much. Well, you know, no, no. Just I mean, <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's the Indianapolis Colts quarterback, Andrew Luck. Uh, ah, there you go. You finally got yeah. him. All right. Now, <laughs> it is a book about mechanical engineering, which he majored in at Stanford. But um, hey, you know, you got to make some exceptions. So, exactly. and I was recently at Content Marketing World. And one thing that I heard over and over again, even from um, fellow agency folks, was uh, how much trouble they're having finding good writers. Um, and they say, you know, it's harder to find good writers than it is coders these days. <laughs> I don't wow. know if that's the case in Mountain View, but it's, uh, it's a big issue. And so I thought that uh, it would be great to have you back on the podcast. We could talk about this topic that is so uh, central to marketing now, even more so than in the past. Um, yeah. And I'd like to start with a, a quick quote from page six in your book. At its core, this book serves nonfiction writers who seek to explain complicated topics outside of the comfort and familiarity of a particular industry or academic discipline. It is dedicated to those who work in the messy trenches of the real world where people skim an article on a mobile phone while riding the subway or pick up a book in a few spare minutes of the day. So, Anne, if we just read the book, we'll become better writers, right? Yeah, yeah, if only. If only that were easy, I'd be charging a lot more for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, you know, this is about why is it, you know, why is it that some some of the people that, um, there are some authors that, you know, they could write a book about shoelaces, and I'm going to pick it up and read it, and gosh darn it, I'm going to really enjoy it, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And there are, there are other writers, there are other uh, books that I pick up at the bookstore. I'm like, oh, this topic is so cool. I bought, get the books and I come home and I, I'm like making myself get through the next chapter. It's like, ah, I really shouldn't put it down until I've read 150 pages, you know? And, and it's just, you know, so, so why is that? And how can we be more 
like that first class of writers, all of us, and it doesn't matter what we're writing, how can we be more like those writers that we really enjoy reading for whatever the reasons that we're bringing to that project, the ones that, that, that keep us going, that, that you know, earn and sustain our attention? Well, so let me ask you a question that I think you must have struggled with in, in tackling this book. Is it possible to reverse engineer effective nonfiction writing? Yeah, so that's what I really tried to do. You know, I mean, I read, you know, I, I went to my bookshelf and pulled all these authors who I love. And, and you know, I'm going to say a lot of them have been on the uh, on this podcast, uh, right? Yes. But also authors who write about, you know, social psychology and people who write about economics or, you know, science, nature, all these. I just read widely in nonfiction. So I pull those authors that I like and I say, what is it that this person's doing? Let me look. And when you start to read at that level, you start to look for the patterns and you say, well, you know, this person is adding a story here. They're being very human here. There's a little glint of uh, humor in the footnote here. You know, you, you start to see these things that, that resonate with you. It's not just how they're explaining the topic. It's what else they're bringing to the writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's this book is, you know, lessons learned from trying to do that, from looking, from reading carefully, and then from calling up and talking to some of these people about in different domains. It's like, well, heck, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them. <laughs> I'll yeah. ask them what they do. Well, you know, I don't, think, I don't think there's a more difficult topic to write about than writing. It's <laughs> yeah. like that guy that uh, recently uh, scaled El Capitan uh, in um, – Yosemite, I believe it is, the big sheer face. He scaled it without a rope, first time it's ever been done. In like no time at all. I mean, he was like Spider-Man up that right. thing. It's just crazy. And it's like, yeah. uh, well, I mean, after you write a book about writing, what else is left? What else is left? Yeah. Well, you know, I am, if anything, an imperfect practitioner of the ideals that I preach, right? Um, because in writing a book about writing and all of these techniques, I'm like, you know, I really have to try to do this. I really have to try to get better at this, you know. So I made it a challenge to myself to use all of the things. And uh, it made me realize there are some things that are easier and some things that are harder for me, as is true with all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it, it does make you raise your game to write about them and to try to use them. Otherwise, you know, or <laughs> Who am I to, to talk about it if I'm not even going to give it, you know, a college try? That's right. You know, you 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 don't really know something until you try to write about it or or teach it. Yeah. Um, yep. So now, you advised uh, readers to, in terms of writing to be understood, to put aside their fascination with the subject matter, and instead <laughs> pick a target audience. I explain what you mean there. Yeah. Well, so. You know, one of the things that we run into, and some like, sometimes those books that we pick up that that sound like they're so interesting, um, and clearly the author just really loves that thing they're writing about, but they they haven't made a connection to me, to me, the, to the reader somehow, and and I don't share that window of fascination with them. Um, you know, that I think that you know the, the question that we all have to ask ourselves, and probably the thing that we are more, most terrified of as writers, whether you're writing you know, something for your workplace or whatever is, is this thing that I'm writing boring? You know, right? It's kind of like, do I have lettuce between my teeth? You have to hold up a mirror to see that thing. You don't know, right? I mean, yes. And as a matter of fact, let me just interject uh, part three of three, part three of this book, 
is entitled How Not to Be Boring. And yep. oddly enough, that's the part my wife wanted me to read first. But go ahead. <laughs> I'm sure there's no subtext there, Douglas. Don't worry about it. Oh, uh, it's a relief. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if, if, if you think that the thing that you're writing is boring, well, then the reader doesn't have a chance. You know, so, <laughs> right. so let's just let's just put that out there. So I'm going to assume that you have found something to engage you in this topic that you're writing about. Um, but even then, you know, boredom is in the eye of the beholder. So you have to understand uh, where the reader is coming from. Um, this book really ultimately is all about what's going on in the reader's head, mm-hmm. not in your head, the writer, but in, in what's going on in the reader's head. And how can you make connections uh, into that? Yes. And, and uh, when you, you're talking in the book early on, you know, you're explaining um, that you need to identify your audience. And there's quite a bit to that. And, and there's a lot, you explain how to go about doing it, but I wanted you to uh, feel free to talk about my favorite talk in marketing, which is buyer personas, if you yeah. and talk about the role they had, they can play in, in your writing. Everything is, just, everyone thinks it's just about, you know, some vague marketing term, but it, it works on so many levels. Yeah, I think when you have a clear idea of, of who, and I, I don't want, so when we say persona, um, I really want to get to the persona part, not like, well, I'm writing for you know, women between 35 and 45 in this role, you know, that's not a, that's a demographic or something. Correct. That's not a, right. Yes, so thank you. a persona. So, so let's, and if you haven't done a persona development exercise, maybe it's just someone, you know, this person that I worked with that yes. I is like this and she really has the attributes of some of my writers. So if you can put a real person in your head when you're writing and when you're planning and um, you get to, you get this bonus of you get to, to plug into what you already instinctively know about communicating with people, right? Um, I don't know how to communicate with a segment of women from 35 to 45 with this income level and whatever, but I know how to talk to Sue, you know, right? Yes. It's like, okay, so I just, my brain can bring in way more interesting examples that might help. Um, I, I can I can think about, well, does Sue really understand this topic or should I define this term for Sue? Or, um, you know, what what is it that she cares about? What might she find funny? You know, all of those things. I get to call in on my innate uh, capabilities because, I mean, when I'm not writing, I'm out there talking to people, as are you. I mean, we all have a certain amount of uh, interpersonal skills and they come into play when you have a very specific reader in mind. Mm-hmm. There was a um, another author on the show, David Newman, who wrote uh, "Do It Marketing," and he talks about buyer personas and how it's it's exactly what you said. It's not just some demographic; it's a deep understanding of of who they are. And the expression he used during the interview was, "Until you know what's missing, funky, broken, and sad in their world, <laughs> you're not going to know." But if you do know that, oh my goodness, yeah, your, your writing can really break through. That's right. That's true. You seem to like things that have the word cognitive in them. A lot of <laughs> interesting things in the brain, about the brain, which I do too. Um, talk about cognitive empathy. Explain what that is and why um, readers need to get it. Yeah. So empathy, you know, we all talk about empathy all the time. And um, there are, as it turns out, different flavors of it. Um, if if the, the one that comes to mind most often is sort of an emotional empathy. You know, if you're suffering, it's, you know, I feel your pain. Um, so then we're both suffering and, and not much happens, which is not a good situation. I mean, yes. I'm not dissing it, but, but uh, what we're talking about here, a cognitive empathy, I think there's another uh, phrase for it, which is perspective taking. Mm. So if you were, you know, you 
just tripped and broke your ankle, I can think about, oh, all the pain Douglas is suffering. Or I could think, ha, so Douglas is sitting there and he's got to get up the stairs to his office. So maybe he'll need someone or he'll need to get this thing. You know, I can take your perspective and think about what does the world look like and what might you need. That's what cognitive empathy is, is sort of trying to get in someone else's head, uh, not not in their emotional state or responding with the emotionally appropriate thing, but thinking of where they're at and then how does what you're offering fit into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not really talking about sympathy, which nope. is uh, you know compassion or pity for someone else. This is getting in their shoes. Right, right. It's a it's a much uh, yeah, it's a much more valuable thing. Really, it's a much more human thing to really try to take another human being's perspective than it is to just say, "Oh, I'm feeling your pain," or "I feel sorry for you." It, it eliminates distance right mm-hmm. between us. You take mm-hmm. someone's perspective. Yes, and when I'm reading something as a you know, potential customer, um, and I, I detect the least bit of uh, the the smallest amount of um, empathy that maybe they actually get me. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like here, take my money. Yeah, because it seems so rare. Right, right. I mean, it's 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 when you can really. This is what you know. I'm trying to get at, and I hope that this is what that what marketers uh, can maybe if you pick up the book and you're in marketing. Anytime you make a human connection with someone you know, a, a deeper connection, you individually writing to them individually. Um, that's a really, really powerful thing. Um, and like you said, it's it's rare and you you don't get it saying, you know, we're the industry leading provider of widgets. Yay. You know, <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not going to make that connection with no. someone. It's got to be something different. Yeah. So um, let's talk about something that I see come up in so many books about sales. And that's, uh, let me quote from page 39. You said, when smart, caring people write incomprehensible stuff, <laughs> the curse of knowledge is usually to blame. Yeah. What is the curse of knowledge and uh, why do we need to be so mindful of it? Well, yeah, we need to be mindful. Let's start with number two, because we all suffer from it. All right. Um, so let's just let's just put that out there. I'm not beyond it. I, I bump into it. I stub my toe on it all the time, which is this. It is forgetting what it's like to not know the stuff that you know. All right. It, so it's, um, you know, if we talk about marketing and customer personas, someone ch- dialing into this who just started a job in marketing may not know what a customer persona is. Yes. So so there's, you know, there's an example just from our conversation. Um, it's, it's just forgetting that, uh, that people don't know the things that you know. It, so it, it really, ultimately, cognitive empathy is, is the cure. Um, and, and so it's, it's what happens, you know, uh, when you read a book, and this is, you know, by, or an article by someone who's, uh, let's say, or an article by someone in engineering who's trying to describe the new feature to the sales team, and they're like, I don't understand what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's that, that's the, the curse of knowledge, that it's not that they're trying to talk over the head or whatever of, of the people, they just don't realize that there's this gap uh, of, of understanding. Um, and it's such an important thing to think about in almost anything we write. Yes, that brings to mind a Dilbert cartoon I saw recently uh, where someone, the one, two panels, one panels, the first one says, uh, you know, you, you work in engineering, Dilbert, explain what you do. In the second frame, he says, I explain things to idiots. <laughs> okay. Just a little engineer humor there for all my engineer. engineer. <laughs> okay, so there are the folks who who have that perception, and but here's the thing: um, the, the the one of the things that makes us laugh about that cartoon is that we have all felt 
like we were on the receiving end of that. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. And sometimes, in fact, the engineer may be, and that may be their subtext, but too often it's, in fact, not. They, So we perceive it. When we, as listeners, encounter the curse of knowledge, we're like, this person's a jerk, you know, <laughs> or, or you know, I mean, we, we it, it sours that relationship right there. You know, it, we perceive it usually as some kind of a, we're being brushed off or betrayed or whatever, you know, and, and uh, that's a real problem in the business context because you generally don't want to alienate your customers. It, yeah. it, it really is a challenge. Whenever I'm giving a presentation, I'll be, you know, maybe including something and I'm going to think, oh, surely they know that. And then I, for sometimes I'll go back and go, well, maybe they don't. And yeah. I never get in trouble by making something uh, clearer or more or simpler. But let's talk about, I mean, <laughs> maybe related to that Dilbert cartoon. It, it, there's one part of the book um, where you talk about how trying to sound smart and accomplished actually makes you seem less so. Why does trying to sound intelligent actually backfire? That You know, there's a study, and I think I've cited it in a couple of my books because it just was such a like a aha moment um, by Daniel Oppenheimer. Um, and why does it happen? I don't know, but it's it could be, you know, our own personal cognitive biases. But if we as listeners or readers have to struggle to understand something, you know, we, we could probably put one of two interpretations on it. Gee, I must be kind of stupid or oh, this person's not very clear, not very smart, maybe, right? Well, most of us for self-preservation are going to blame the other person. <laughs> so we we're are. not going to say, dang, I'm stupid. You know, I mean, that's not what we want to do. So it, it does not. And, and the, the funny thing is that it, it bites you if you're trying to use these big words or the insider terminology to sound, you know, I'm ultra educated and smart. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually really make you uh, seem that smart. And in fact, you seem really brilliant. The people who I think are really brilliant are the ones who can really explain with crystal clarity something that seems like it should be complicated. That's 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 my impression of these people. Um, like recently I interviewed Jay Bear, and that guy, he, I mean, he's a really smart guy, and he's just as nice as he is smart, but his yeah. ability to explain things, it's 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 just it's just amazing and i think there was even a study where they looked at some um you quoted where they uh translated some passages from rené descartes yeah and some were clearer than others and then they thought descartes was smarter or not as smart based on <laughs> yes how clear even, the <laughs> go ahead even when the readers knew that it was a translation of rené descartes they're like yeah this idea is really not that you know i don't think he's that smart you know, i don't know they were asked to assess his iq or something and the bad translation made him seem less uh less intelligent so you know they just internalize that if you think that you're making you know if you're going to like puff up your prose a bit and like yeah they're going to think i'm smart you know internalize that that uh that that study about you don't need to just throw in the big words for the sake of the big words uh and yeah <laughs> not, not only does it not help it actually hurts that was my, yes, <laughs> that was my exactly. new learning here it hurts so let's um again talking about uh engineers and people like that who love uh you know uh data <laughs> on page 69 under a subhead entitled what not to do <laughs> you talk about certain things that don't work and that actually challenge or threaten readers' fundamental beliefs. <laughs> and yeah. Jan's answer, what's the problem with what you call data, data, and more data? 
<laughs> and, and, you know, gosh, we see this all the time. So in this chapter, I'm trying to write about when you're writing about something where there's like a, a barrier of belief or it's not an easy audience. For some reason, this audience is not queued up for you. They are not waiting to hear what you have to say. Yeah, they're right? sitting there. Think of them sitting there with their arms crossed. Exactly. So they're, they're sitting there with their arms crossed and you think that you're right and they think that they're right. Well, um, you know so, you're right. Well, <laughs> naturally, you're right. So we'll just start there. But you know, the way that you get through to them is not to throw more data at them. It's like, look, this, this, this. That rarely convinces, changes people's minds about things that um, are important to them or that's that something that's fundamentally a belief and not not a uh, just a, a, if it's something trivial, it's like, you know, this car gets better mileage than that one. Yes, you could throw data at it. Like a political belief. I see this all the time where there's all kinds of facts out there irrelevant. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and you can't, you, it's, you're arguing with facts, but the real beliefs are dug in at a different level. They're mm -hmm. dug in at an emotional level, and so it's like you're almost speaking different languages to each other. It just isn't going to make any difference. Uh, and that's a hard thing to uh, internalize if you're sure that the data proves you right. Again, you know, to the rescue is cognitive empathy, to try to understand what it is where these people are coming from, what their belief systems are, what it is that's making them feel, and how can you talk in a language that's going to resonate with where they're from, rather than just throwing at them more of your perspective. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist can help your career. Listening to the Marketing Book Podcast says more about you than you may realize. In addition to being physically attractive, Seriously, I've met many of you, and you are a very attractive audience. It also means that you're curious and serious about your business success, and you enjoy learning new things. And your interest in learning also means you're either successful or will be, because all the research indicates that big learners are big earners. Plus, with all the changes happening in marketing and sales, continuous learning is crucial. But there's only so much time and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are really top-notch, including several books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Meerman Scott, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, Epic Content Marketing by Joe Polizzi, Everybody Writes by Ann Hanley, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear, and many, many more. It took me hours to read those books, but you can get smart audio summaries of each one in just 15 minutes. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 1 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. 
Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. I recommend getting the yearly plan, that's what I did, and getting 20% off because you're going to want to keep it anyway. But don't worry because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. No questions asked. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, and that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. It's a great, inexpensive, and very smart investment in your professional development and career. And now, back to the show. Now, somewhat related to that, uh, you talked about like when writing about obvious risks, mm. you know, so like in other words, if you uh, like a, it'd be like a doctor saying if you continue smoking, it mm-hmm. will probably affect your, you know, it's like <laughs> you write that it's, it's easy and tempting to dwell on, you know, on the downside. Let's say it's some business practice that their company's not doing, but they should. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't really spur people to action by highlighting um the magnitude of the risk. Talk about how this can actually backfire. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, there, there's certain kinds of risk people don't want to uh, pay attention to. And I, I got a lot of this insight talking with a woman named Michelle Walker, who wrote a book called The Gray Rhino, talking about these oh, risks on, right. a, yes. on, a, uh, on a global financial level. So a great book if you're interested in that. It really, she's an economist, very smart. It's, a, it's about obvious risks that people don't want to or can't, uh, don't want to acknowledge. Yeah, so it's not like the elephant in the room. It's like the rhino charging at you. And if you get out of the way early enough, you are totally fine. You know, but if you wait until the last minute, you know, it's not so good. Right. Um, and and you know, she'll pick things like, you know, I mean, there's economic like a country's cycle. debt or something like that. Country's debt. Um, you could say, you know, depending on again your belief systems, that climate change is one of those. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an obvious. We can see lots of risks coming the way from it. We could t- the sooner you take action, the easier it is to get out of the way of the rhino. Um, uh, things like that. Oh, but just telling people this, it doesn't really seem to work. Yeah, it's you. You can't just lead with fear, fear, and more fear because they. One of the you know, there's there's fight or flight. Everybody talks about, but that but the third option is freeze. And I think most people are like, ah, if I just ignore it, it's not. I'm just what's on Netflix, you know? <laughs> right? Oh, let me check social media. <laughs> let me check social media. Nobody's talking about it. We're all fine, um, you know. Uh, so, you know, she suggests, uh, framing things as opportunities, you know, you could be among the first people to do this, um, you know, to, to try to give people a sense of hope, uh, and, and find different ways than just, um, hitting them with fear. One of the first jobs, my very first marketing job, it was doing database backup and recovery. And, uh, you know, that was something that's like, yeah, yeah, we know we should have better backups, you know, but uh, we'll just wait till there's an outage and then we'll call you. <laughs> so, um, you know, this this appears in lots of ways in the business context uh, as well, um, in, in smaller ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to find a different way to get your message through than just, you know, fear, 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 the rhino's coming. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about, you know, the data, they kind of resist. Sometimes people can resist data if it, they don't believe, if it, if it contradicts their underlying belief and also you know the thing we just talked about you know just scaring these people doesn't seem seem to work Mm -hmm. um and it makes me want to ask about you know the hot new marketing buzzword storytelling yeah and uh you talk about how uh story uh, stories power 
lies in uh, part how it lands in the reader's mind. Um, yeah. What what talk about what happens in the brain when we do hear a story and and why stories are 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 very they really are actually very powerful, but I guess they can be a bit overwhelming for some marketer trying to understand well what they're supposed to do. Yeah, so there's there's two parts to that. So one is why they're powerful. Um, and, and, you know, as marketers, I mean, I worked in tech marketing for a lot of years. And so I was always busy with the the rational, the data-driven, the science, you know, whatever. This is how this works. The very um, rational, the, the, the most recently developed parts of your brain working on it, your executive functioning, you know, figuring this out and all of that. Um, but the brain's a lot bigger than that. Human beings are a lot more complex than just our, our rational thinking, obviously. Um, and so stories really engage more parts of your reader's uh, brain and attention. Mm-hmm. You know, a story a story gives them some cognitive empathy sometimes into another person's situation, changes their perspective. It often has a, a physical setting, a time and a place. So now instead of just listening to data things, they're actually just for a moment, you know, summoning an image of a time. They're using visual processing or or maybe a memory is kicking in. Way more of their brain is now responding to your uh, what you're writing or what you're saying than if you were just uh, harping on about your features or your benefits or the, the rational things. Um, so that's, you know, they're, they're a, a way to connect in a much more thorough way with your reader's brain. Now, um, it is a very hyped, um, not hyped, you know, it, it's legitimately championed as a marketing strategy. Um, but what is, you know, it can terrify people. And I have to admit to being one of those people who was kind of terrified from uh, about the idea of, of storytelling. It's like, I, I'm not a storyteller. Ah, you know, so I thought, well, I'll read up on it. And I read all these books and oh, good grief. You know, there's, there's, wait, is this the rising action or the falling action? Like or the, the, you Joseph know, it's like, Campbell has like 17 <laughs> right? parts to his uh, exactly. hero's journey. Exactly. And if you're writing a screenplay, you know, dive into all of that. But for you and me, um, we can take a much lighter touch. And, and it's taken me a few books and some other writing projects to really get comfortable with this. But a story can be a moment in time. You know, it can be just a very uh, a snapshot. Uh, it can be just a, a short personal anecdote. It doesn't have to be a three-act play. Um, just anything that makes that you know, sort of connection with someone. It's like, oh, wait, can you picture this scene and this feeling? That might be enough to be a story to connect with someone um, and make your point and and also have that effect that you're trying to have of, of connecting with their thoughts or their memories um, and give, letting them help to uh, construct the meaning of what you're saying. Yeah, and then and then that could help to soften up maybe if you want to sneak in a little bit of data at that point. Then absolutely. I mean, it, you. It, I'm not saying no data, obviously. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's, but don't bludgeon yeah. them with that and only that. <laughs> right, right. It doesn't exactly. work. Can Can you say just a little bit about the role of um, curiosity, and 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 as it relates to writing to be understood? Yeah, I think that this is maybe the most important thing for for you to think about as a writer is like is is your reader's curiosity because it's not a given even if they click through your to your link or start looking at your book or whatever it may be that you're offering, that they're going to keep going, right? I mean, we all have a lot of demands on our time. So you've either got to be offering them something that's incredibly relevant and valuable to them, which I really hope you are, 
Um, but you also um, need to be making them curious about what is it you're offering or, you know, giving them something to, to uh, grab and feed their curiosity to stay with you, especially if you have a longer message to communicate than a, than a one-click ad. Mm-hmm. You, you advise to um, think like a clickbait writer and then, <laughs> and then dial it way back. Way back, yeah, right now. <laughs> I don't want to see cheesy headlines coming from every marketer now who listens to this podcast. I mean, you don't have to. But there is something that, well, of course, you know, marketers ruin everything. There is something with clickbait headlines that does start to, um, that it does engage, that goes in that direction of curiosity. It just goes a little too far. Yeah, yeah. So when you see one that you're like, oh, I shouldn't click through to this, you know, and yet you're tempted, go, wait, why am I tempted? What is it about? Did it give me some uh, some fact that seems contradictory and now I want to know how that's resolved? Did it, you know, what is it about that that made you curious? Because it turns out, you know, they are activating your curiosity and that's a, a really a very powerful thing. That's how you're going to get people, that's how you invite them in and how you continue uh their presence with your with your subject and your message. The interview with Ann Janser went well, but wait till you hear the end. <laughs> you won't believe what she said next. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh my goodness. So um let me ask you I'm gonna read something directly from the book, okay? And then I want to okay. talk about this. Analogies are accelerants for the fire of understanding. <laughs> and Jancer, what, what did you do there? See what I did there? Yeah, this is very meta. I used an analogy to describe an analogy. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about that. So you can talk about uh, analogies and uh, metaphors and simile, similes. They're both methods of proposing analogies right. that, that explore similarities between two things. So uh, I guess what's an analogy, but what's the difference between a metaphor and a, a simile? Okay, so the, the metaphor sim- and simile uh, comparison is really... You know, it, it seems um, uh, academic. It, with a simile, you broadcast that you are making a uh, comparison by saying, you know, this is like that. Um, uh, and, and with a metaphor, you just simply say, you know, that her lips are like red, red roses is a simile. Her lips are red, red roses is a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're just taking away the like. You're just saying that two things, two unrelated things are the same and leaving it to the reader to make that connection. Right. Um, like back to Jay Bear, he often says, um, content is fire, social media is gasoline. Right, right. So that's a metaphor. Yeah. And you as the as the listener hearing him say that or the reader reading it, you stop and you put it together. Oh yeah, okay, gasoline on fire. Oh yeah, okay. So you you know, you are now engaged in constructing the meaning because you understand gasoline and fire so now you understand something about content and social media mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah right and you say, you say the simile is is often like a setup for a joke yeah so the, the the thing difference if you're using a simile instead of a metaphor a metaphor you can leave hanging there like like jay bear does he can just say that and leave it to you to construct it if you if you use a simile if you say uh social media is like gasoline content like fire if i got that backwards <laughs> anyway um then you have to explain it if it's not immediately clear, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise you can't just say something's like that and walk away, leaving the reader going, wait, in what way did you mean that? <laughs> you <know? Right. laughs> so, um, 
<laughs> so it's it's you, you're being explicit, so you actually have to provide the punchline, which is the explanation, unless it's like super crystal clear. And if it was super crystal clear, you might have used a metaphor, I suppose. Yes. Well, you know, I would argue this is not academic because I saw a Verizon wireless commercial not too long ago in some sporting event I was watching, and the whole joke was about a little girl explaining to an adult that he was using a simile, not a metaphor. <laughs> There you go. English majors rule. That's yeah. right. That's right. So one other question I wanted to ask you to, to explain is uh, a statement you say involves style and tone. Again, these are enormous topics, and I'm, I'm not being fair by asking you to talk about these uh, quickly, but you say style belongs to the writer and tone to the reader. Yeah. So this is, you know, because I was struggling with, how do I, you know, we all use these words almost interchangeably, but I don't think they are. I think the tone of the, the piece is, is, is a perceived and experienced thing, right? So really, the tone is what, if you're the reader, it's what you think it is. Mm -hmm. um, now, if, if I was effective, hopefully I had some control over that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't write something that was wildly hilarious and I thought I was being very serious. That's a problem. Um, so... But style, then, is the whole toolbox of stuff that I can do as writers that will communicate and create the tone that I would like the piece to eventually land with on the reader, right? Mm -hmm. So that so the tone is something that it is uh, perceived by the reader. And if you think of this when you're planning your writing, if you think about what's the tone I want this to have, then you must understand who the reader is and what's the way that they're encountering this piece. How are they encountering it? Um, otherwise, you have no control over time. I mean, you have to, to do that. You have to understand your reader and their situation. Right. So when I was little and my mother would say, I don't like your tone, yeah. she was actually referring to my style. That's right. <laughs> Or she didn't like the way that it, it that that she perceived what you were saying. See, the words you said could have been totally fine. It was the uh, <laughs> that's right. That's it right. It was what she experienced. The tone. Now you know, um, I don't know that you're going to find this as a universal uh, definition. If you talk to other people, I've read around a lot of places, and it seems like so many places just use tone and style almost interchangeably. But I think it's a really useful distinction to make as a writer. Um, that your style is what you is your toolbox of what you have, and the tone is what happens. The mm. tone is what how this lands because ultimately, you know, your your writing is not done until somebody has read and interpreted it. It's mm. a it's a two at least a two party thing, right? Mm. Writing a piece of writing sitting in the drawer that never goes anywhere is not a complete piece of communication until somebody has read it. Right. Right. Um, last thing I wanted to ask was, uh, to, you, you talk about what, what writers can learn from, from public speakers. Talk about the importance or, or fear writers have of, of repetition. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, if you listen to good public speakers, they repeat artfully, they repeat intentionally um, to help people uh, internalize what, they, what they're hearing. Um, and I think that the same thing needs to happen in writing. Now, again, in writing, our biggest fear is being boring, of course. So we mm -hmm. don't want to bore people by just repeating ourselves. And I, heaven knows I'm not suggesting that you do that. Well, people but might think, do, oh, I've already said that. I've already said, I said that 40 pages back. Don't they remember? You know, <laughs> so there's that. 
there's in a book you you have to realize people may be reading in you know half hour spurts and so the fact that you said something four chapters ago doesn't really mean that it's fresh in their head um but even in the work in if you're writing something for a web page and you may have said it on the previous page or maybe someone just kind of skimmed past that thing that you that you said before um so the the trick is being artful and repeating in a way that doesn't seem repetitious and boring and sometimes that's by presenting uh the same point then in a story and sometimes it's it could be using structural elements like uh, headlines and summaries uh, to, again, bring out those key things that you want people to remember. Um, but, you know, the moral of the story is that, you know, you actually need to repeat yourself a little bit more. And this is something that, you know, I talked to like Daniel Pink and he's like, no, you have to you have to repeat yourself because um, people may not have it may not have sunk in the first time they, they read it and, and they may need to hear it again. Um, so he does that in his writing, but it never feels boring or repetitive. He just kind of circles around, touches it again. It makes sure that his key points, those few things um, that he really wants you to internalize, uh, have been repeated. Yes, there were a number of folks you interviewed in the book, and uh, the the bits from um, Daniel Pink, just just fascinating, as yeah. well as Alan Alda. Yeah, well, I, I quoted Alan Alda because I didn't actually get to him, but I did talk to the uh, director of the Alan Alda Institute for Science Communication, which is a fascinating group of people um, trying to help scientists and others be more effective communicators by um, really by, I think, learning cognitive empathy by doing improv activities. Mm-hmm. So so Alan Alda has developed this whole training regimen using things based out of the theater and improv um, to help people communicate more effectively when they're talking about things like medicine and science uh, to an audience who needs a broader audience who needs to understand it. I think it's a it's a fascinating story. It's really interesting what he's been doing. And yeah. his book is entitled, uh, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face or something yep. like that? <laughs> Yeah, that's the title. It's great. It's a good read. I mean, I highly, I highly recommend it. I quote from it. It's in the uh, bibliography of my book. I have a bunch of the books that I really uh, pulled a lot from, and uh, that was one. I was very inspired by it mm. and what he's doing. It's, it's very cool. So, Anne, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would, I would hope it's this, not to be afraid to tinker with your writing style, um, you know, it's so easy to get stuck. And especially when we're writing on the job about the same topic all the time um, uh, to just kind of get stuck. Oh, I'll just keep putting out the same old, same old. Um, or just not really think about it. Not really think about it. Um, and, and you know, to, to, to pick something, uh, you know, it, <laughs> I tried to model it in the book, experiment with it. It's like, well, maybe, maybe an analogy is going to help. use more analogies or maybe I'll try a story or maybe I'll try this just experiment with it and see uh, see what it does you know show a little vulnerability instead of trying to uh, talk about how great and smart you are let a a tiny bit of vulnerability show through and see what does that do to the writing what does Mm -hmm. that do to the its impact on your target reader Um, it's actually uh, a little scary but a lot of fun to just start experimenting with a few of these writing things um, and try to become a little bit more like the writers that you most admire and enjoy. Mm -hmm. You know, one question I meant to ask, which I'm now going to ask. Okay. Explain why humor, the topic of humor, is one of the last chapters in the (laughs) book. (laughs) 
um, because, well, it falls in the how to not be boring category. So it had to, it had to go in there um, because it's definitely one way to not be boring. Also, because I think it's hardest, yep. potentially trickiest mm-hmm. and should be used um, probably, I mean, most sparingly. I didn't want to lead with it because uh, it's... It's something that I think to get to when you're really comfortable with the other stuff, you can start just letting a little bit of humor in. Less is generally better, and especially in the business context, you need to be careful with it. Um, unless it's you know part of your brand, Dollar Shave Club, you know, was founded on on humor. I think it, it seems like it's also the topic that people would give you the greatest pushback on, like, oh, I need to be funny. That's like public yeah. speaking. It's terrifying, and you don't even need to be funny. Right. And if you do right. all the other things that you talk about, or at least yeah. some of them, a little bit, <laughs> yeah, it'll have an enormous impact. Yeah, that's right. And and you may end up finding then that you know, well, if you're going to be kind of show up and human or be a little bit vulnerable, you could just tell a really small, short anecdote about yourself, and mm-hmm. that might be just make somebody smile, and that's all you got to do. It doesn't it doesn't have to be a big. It shouldn't be a big setup for a joke or a right. Know. And I think it's. Good that people don't feel pressure uh, to do yeah. that. So yeah. are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend, have heard of, or are looking forward to reading? I have just um, just been reading uh, Pamela Wilson's latest book, Master Content Strategy, mm-hmm. uh, which is a terrific book, uh, once again. And, you know, she is one of these person, people who models a lot of these uh, good writing s- strategies that I talk about in this in this book because she is crystal clear and she uses a great sort of foundational analogy in this book for which I think is both instructive and and a little bit funny you know I mean she so it it makes it enjoyable to read even while you are thinking oh dang that's good stuff I got to write that down and do that <laughs> so I think that's just coming out October uh, just just this month um, so uh, yeah I'm sure. You should you should pick that one up. Yeah, and uh, her book, her first book, Master Content Marketing, and I got to interview her for the Marketing Book Podcast. We have a copy of the book, and we're in this line of work. Okay, that book is dog-eared, <laughs> sitting yeah. on the table right behind me. It's a a desk desk reference. It is it is so good. And you know what else is so interesting about um, Pamela is that she started out as a graphic designer. Yeah, right, right. She didn't start out as a writer, but I love, you know, she has this sort of lazy but effective content marketing strategy. And like, oh, this is a woman after my own heart. I love it. So <laughs> it's like self taught. Uh, yep. You know, it's almost, it reminds me of what was it? Uh, Joseph Conrad, one of the greatest English authors. His native tongue was Polish. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, yeah, you know, he was able to look at it objectively. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, with, uh, to interview her uh, about that and, and get a copy of that one too, because those are really um, yeah. excellent, excellent book. And I've recommended that to, uh, to many folks. How best can listeners learn more about you and uh, this newest book? So I have a, uh, a website, which is just my name and with the silent E. Janzer.com. And on there, you can find uh, information about all my books, uh, online classes, sign up for a once every other week writing uh, blog or writing practices. Uh Yep. Um, I have a once a month uh, email that goes out related to subscription marketing. So I still kind of dabble in that. Um, And there's a contact form. So you can actually, you know, connect with me directly if you want to do that there. Uh, the book, Writing to be Understood, is available. It, you know, it should be available 
anywhere, although you, if you go to an indie bookstore or a traditional retail bookstore, you're going to have to ask them to order it because it's probably not on the shelf. Uh, but it is available as an ebook, uh, paperback, and hardcover uh, through the usual places and in and, and the giant jungle of Amazon. It's there as well. <laughs> right. You know, just last week, um, a listener listeners contact me almost every day now. It's really cool. They'll uh, they'll send me messages on LinkedIn. They'll say, hey, what's a book about this that you know may have been on the podcast or that you know of that might be able to help me with this challenge in my, in my job? And just last week, someone said, hey, I need a book about writing. There you go. <laughs> about about uh, my writing. So I thought, oh, great. Well, now <laughs> I have two recommendations for you. So Perfect. There you go. And we'll include uh, on your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, and all that. And for the for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone right now uh, and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player like Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. If you're driving, please <laughs> keep your hands on the steering wheel and your <laughs> eyes on the road. Put your phone in the back seat where you can't reach it. The name of the book is Writing to be Understood, What Works and Why. The author is Ann Janser. And thank you very much for coming back on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Douglas. It's always fun. And that closes the book on episode 196 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. And please join us next time as we welcome Stan Phelps to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Pink Goldfish, Defy Ordinary, Exploit Imperfection, and Captivate Your Customers. And make sure to stay subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast because we've got a very, very special guest joining us for the 200th episode. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. So the audience is about half international, okay. 150 countries. And I mention that because sometimes I have to remind myself to go easy on the American pop culture references or to sometimes I have to back up and I said, oh, maybe you should explain, you know, whatever. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to keep so that So when you're mind, talking but... about I Dream of Jeannie. Um, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I got to scratch that out of my notes. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.